This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've been practicing for over 20 years in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're going to be talking about something frightening, threatening, something that no one wants to believe could happen in their own lives. We're going to be talking about suicide. I want to say, first and foremost, that if you're listening and you have any sense of being in danger yourself of committing suicide, the Suicide Prevention Hotline number is available 24 hours a day at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. That number will be in the show notes as well. We're going to look at some statistics from the United States, but know that suicide is increasing internationally. There's a fascinating article by Jean, and I wish I knew how to say her name, T-W-E-N-G-E, Twinge, Twinge, this month in the Atlantic, that I'm going to go over with you. It's fascinating, but it's also a little scary to realize what social media is doing to our newest generation of young adults when they're still teenagers. We're going to talk about the six things that you can do, because we always talk about what you can do about it. But then I also would never talk about suicide without also mentioning how to grieve or how to go through that process. I have a very poignant metaphor that a patient gave me many years ago for the dilemma of when someone you love commits suicide. I've never forgotten it. And then, as always, I have an email from a listener. We're going to talk a little bit about what it means to others when we share our own struggles. Maybe if more of us did that, people who feel suicidal would be less likely to feel so alone. Something to think about. As I said in the intro, suicide rates are going up dramatically. It's the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. Each year, over 44,000 Americans die by suicide. And for every suicide, there are 25 attempts. More men die by suicide, in fact, three and a half more times often than women. Women, however, attempt more. They just don't use such lethal means. On average, there are 121 suicides per day. White males accounted for 7 out of 10 suicides in 2015. And firearms account for almost 50% of all suicides. The rate of suicide is highest in middle age, in men in particular. And this is a growing trend. But I was fascinated by an article in The Atlantic by Jean Twenge, T-W-E-N-G-E, who's been researching generational differences for over 20 years. And I'm going to quote her from the article. She's very articulate. I've been researching generational differences for 25 years, starting when I was a 22-year-old doctoral student in psychology. Typically, the characteristics that come to define a generation appear gradually and along a continuum. Beliefs and behaviors that were already rising simply continue to do so. 
Millennials, for instance, are a highly individualistic generation, but individualism had been increasing since the baby boomers turned on, tuned in, and dropped out. I had grown accustomed to line graphs of trends that looked like modest hills and valleys. Then I began studying today's teenage generation. Around 2012, I noticed abrupt shifts in teen behaviors and emotional states. The gentle slopes of line graphs became steep mountains and sheer cliffs, and many of the distinctive characteristics of the millennial generation began to disappear. In all my analyses of generational data, some reaching back to the 1930s, I had never seen anything like it. And I'll continue as I quote Gene Twenge. At first, I presumed these might be blips, but the trends persisted across several years and a series of national surveys. The changes weren't just in degree, but in kind. The biggest difference between the millennials and their predecessors was in how they viewed the world. Teens today differ from the millennials, not just in their views, but in how they spend their time. The experiences they have every day are radically different from those of the generation that came of age just a few years before them. What happened in 2012 to cause such dramatic shifts in behavior? It was after the Great Recession, which officially lasted from 2007 to 2009 and had a stark effect on millennials trying to find a place in a sputtering economy. But it was exactly the moment when the proportion of Americans who owned a smartphone surpassed 50%. She goes on to note in her article that these behavioral changes include some things that perhaps culturally we think would be good, like less drinking and teenagers having less sex, but they also spend more time in isolation and on their iPhones or on their iPads. They seem to have a decreased desire for independence and less social time. And then when there is social time, it's documented relentlessly with selfies and Snapchats, leading to feelings of others who see these things that they're being left out, discarded, and their childhoods last far into college. She calls this generation iGen. She states things like 12th graders are acting more like the 9th graders that were millennials. So in just one generation, things have changed dramatically. And suicide rates have gone up dramatically. I'll quote her once more. As teens have started spending less time together, they have become less likely to kill one another and more likely to kill themselves. In 2011, for the first time in 24 years, the teen suicide rate was higher than the teen homicide rate. Her article is extensive and extremely well-written, as I said before. But basically, the undisputable fact is that the more screen time that a teenager is engaged in, the less happy they are, the more they will report as depressed. This is astounding to think about because these are kids who are going to have dealt with anxiety and depression in their formative years. So what does that say for the rest of their lives? If indeed they choose not to commit suicide, which of course most of them do not, but starting out with such a shaky start and instead of having your neighborhood or even your small town or your larger city to compare yourself to, to compare your life to, You're comparing it to this 
endless world out there that you get exposed to through the internet. The pressure seems staggering. I'd highly recommend that you read the entire article because her information is so well-researched, and she has a book coming out that I don't believe they gave the name of it, but I bet it's going to be very interesting. So what can we do when we love teenagers or even young adults who we know are spending a great deal of time on social media? I've come up with six things. I'm sure that there are more than that. Some of these I've learned from my patients who have teenagers. I do have some teenagers as patients, so they, they really help me understand some of the things that work for them and don't work. First of all, you can establish times when technology takes a back seat. There can be a No Tech Tuesday or a Phone Free Friday and take device-free vacations. Have your child understand that they can go without looking at their phone for more than five minutes. The second is to put away your own phone when you're with your kids, at least as much as you can. They are watching and learning from you. I can remember when my son was a toddler, I had a beeper. Remember those? (laughs) They're kind of ancient now. But I had a beeper and he would hide it because the message was, please be with me. I want your time. I want your presence. I want you in the moment. The third is to realize that you probably don't understand the world of Snapchat. My teenagers educate me in the different ways that their generation is using Instagram and Snap. For example, there are different hierarchies. There are certain friends you Snap and certain friends you Instagram, and then there's different ways to have back accounts that only certain people can see. So there's a growing, complex structure for this kind of communication that can be used constructively, but also destructively. Have your child show you and help you understand. Know how to check your child's account and do it regularly. They may not like it, but it's part of you making sure they're handling the responsibility of their device well. The fourth is to make sure they're involved in some kind of activity where they're physically and emotionally connected with their peers. This can be debate class, it can be a sports team, it can be a chess club, anything that gets them out and with real people, not having virtual experiences alone. I've learned with my younger patients that when they say they're dating someone, I need to ask them, have they ever really met this person? Because they will be having virtual relationships and they're so real to them that in my baby boomer version of dating, I have to make sure that I know what they're talking about and correct my own thinking. The fifth phenomenon that I've seen is that many parents give their kids a phone way too early due to the fact that either they can't communicate with an ex or it's simply an inconvenience. I really want to stress to you that you recognize the danger of giving it too soon, way before a child has the maturity to handle some of the things that might come their way. So if you can't communicate with your ex, try to learn how. There are therapists, for example, that specialize in working with divorced parents and their children. Try to not make your child suffer for what your vulnerability is as a parent. And sixth addresses texting. 
I would really recommend that you check texts from time to time, especially if you suspect a problem. Always know your child's password. Now, you have to allow them to rant and rave about how bad you are as a parent. Texting is their way of talking on the phone. But watch for texts that involve manipulation, bullying, or certainly sex. I can't talk about suicide without talking about some of the people that I have seen try to handle their emotions after a loved one has committed suicide. And I will tell you that in my own practice, it's very apparent to me that the suicide rate is increasing. I've watched more and more people have to cope with someone they loved taking their own life. A father with a mentally ill schizophrenic son who finally could not take what was happening inside of his head any longer. A husband with a wife who had learned of her toddler's autism, fairly severe autism, and she didn't think she could handle it. He'd be better off without her. A wife whose husband had kept secret the enormous debt he owed. The mother whose son had no classic signs of depression. I talk about that in my episodes 003 and 004 and others about perfectly hidden depression, and it's very important to realize that just because someone doesn't look suicidal doesn't mean they're not suicidal. Please check out those episodes. But I want to offer a metaphor that a patient said to me one time. Let's call her Janet. Her older sister had committed suicide fairly recently. They had been through a really traumatic childhood together, and her sister had protected her. In fact, they'd both been sexually abused. Now the older sister struggled with heavy substance abuse, and she had a lot of other problems. She would steal from family members, mostly to get drugs. Yet, there was a bond between them that was almost palpable. I, I actually saw both of them in session at some point, although the older sister was not a regular patient of mine. She was coming to work with her younger sister. They confided in one another, and Janet thought she always knew what was going on. She didn't know what was going on the night her sister shot herself. She looked at me and said the most beautiful but the most painful thing that I'd ever heard. She said, It's like I'm standing with the end of a rope in my hands. I have held this rope all my life. When I tugged on it, no matter what time of day or night, my sister held the other end, and she would tug back. What do I do now? She dropped her end of the rope. When I tug on it, there's no one there. I've never felt lonelier in my life, and I don't know what to do. Do I drop it? Do I carry it around? Do I hold it in my hand? Do I wait for someone else to pick it up, but knowing there is no one else that will ever pick it up? As she worked her way through her grief... I can remember the day she said, You know, I'm going to take the rope and I'm going to put it away. I might want to get it out and just look at it from time to time. I might want to feel the sinews of the rope. I might want to remember what it was like to connect with my sister. But it's too painful to keep on holding it. That's what many of those people that I mentioned before eventually have to do. Their pain never goes away. Their sense of guilt, the questions, the never-ending questions of why 
Could I have done anything? Did I miss something? Why didn't he or she tell me how bad they were feeling? Was our relationship not what I thought it was? What didn't I understand? And then there's anger and immense sadness and loss. I want to make sure that you don't hear me as in some way condemning the people who commit suicide. I can't quite imagine being in that place, although I have certainly had the experience of many people telling me that they are in it, and I've tried to help the best I can. I would never condemn them, but the impact of that action is so difficult for the people who loved them. Many of them know that or talk about that, and it keeps them from committing suicide. Others reach a point where, like the mother I was telling you about, believe that others would be better off without them, or they have some other reason for making that very painful choice. If this has happened to you, and you're stuck in your grief about your loved one's suicide, please reach out for help, either to a grief counseling group, to a therapist, to a pastor, to a friend, someone who will listen to you and perhaps help you see where you're stuck. I had a woman one time as a patient whose husband had died suddenly in a car accident. She wondered, actually, if it was suicide, but she never knew because he was an excellent driver. She had gone to his graveside every day for the two years since he had passed away. But she hadn't done the pragmatic things. She hadn't paid taxes. She hadn't taken care of business. And when she came in, she realized that somehow she didn't have to deal with her anger if she kept away from how difficult her life had become, simply practically speaking, since her loss of him. It was in talking with a therapist, with me, that she began to realize what part of her grief she was avoiding. And I certainly hope that it was helpful to her. Remember, there are those that would be available to help you as well. And now we have an email from a listener, and you're not really going to hear a problem that this person has written me about, but I want to make a point with this particular email. She said, thanks so much for your podcast. I came across it recently and have been binge listening. That makes me feel good. I found it by searching my podcast app for therapy podcasts, and I would love to give you a review, but sadly, the Android app doesn't have that option. She tells me some facts about herself, where she lives, how old she is. She's 38, a wife and a mom. For the last few years, I've had an insatiable drive to learn about psychology, the mind, self-help, and what makes us, us. Thanks so very much for your contribution. Your podcast is not only enlightening, but the advice is given in a warm and friendly manner that it really does feel quite therapeutic. I'm guessing that's what you're going for, so you've hit the mark. I find myself moved to tears sometimes by your stories, and I really value your openness and honesty about your own struggles. Please continue your work. It's appreciated. Now, before you start believing that I'm simply being self-congratulatory by reading this, I have a point. My point is this. She's thanking me for telling my story. And yet I want to share with you that I, just like everybody else, wonder, well, what are people going to think about me if I talk about my panic disorder or I talk about my divorces or I talk about my eating disorder that I had in the past, still 
struggle with the thinking a little bit. Are people going to turn off this podcast and say, well, gosh, what does she know? Of course I have that concern. But I believe that it's so important for each of us to be real about our own story. That's why I include stories from my own life, both the things that I think are funny, the things that I think are vulnerable, all in order to stand up for something I believe in, which is it's quite acceptable and really wonderful to share, again, your real story with the people that you're trying to help, the people you care about. So I'm encouraging you to do the same thing when you're ready and with whom you're ready to do it. Good luck. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. I hope it's been helpful to you and informative. I'm really loving hearing from so many of you with emails. You can email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. I have a website which has the original name of drmargaretrutherford.com, and I blog there weekly, have been for almost five years. So there's a lot of information there. And of course, if you subscribe to my website, you will receive both my blogs and my podcasts. I have a Facebook page as well, which is facebook.com slash Dr. Margaret Rutherford. And I post all kinds of articles I find interesting there as well as my own work. So I'd love to have you as a follower on Facebook. As I request every podcast, I'd so appreciate a rating or review wherever you listen, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. It really would mean a lot to me because that's the best way for self-work to get into the ears of other people. (laughs) Not so sure that's quite the way to say it, but for other people to hear it. I love doing this, and it does give me motivation if you rate, review, or, of course, subscribe. I do have a little gift book that I love to tell you about. It's called Marriage is Not for Chickens. It's a great book for someone getting engaged or getting married, celebrating an anniversary, or just simply because they did something nice for you. It's a slim little gift book. It's not a tome by any stretch of the imagination. And so... You know, you can tuck it in with a gift card or give it instead of a gift card, but it's available on Amazon. Love for you to give it a look. Thanks so much for joining me today. It was a very serious topic, but one that deserves so much attention. Maybe we can help make a difference. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and you've been listening to Self Work.